Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome, guys. This is weird for us, isn't it? Because we're actually recording on the day of release of last week's episode. Oh, that's very weird. So this is super organised. This is very organised. Crikey. So we've got something very special this week, haven't we? We do. We have another listener-written case, a script that was very kindly written for us by Daniel. You may recall he wrote an episode for us previously when we covered the crazy tale of John Haig, the acid bath killer. That was a superb episode. Please do go back and re-listen to that. It was season four, episode eight off the top of my head. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is written down here for me, which was uh, Dan Daniel's first foray into writing for us. And Daniel is coming back uh, with this episode, and it really is an amazing uh, case, this one. We know you'll enjoy this episode, and we would love for you all to check out his work at dk4poetry.com slash blog, or by searching for dk4poetry on Instagram. So before we begin, let's thank our newest Patreon supporters. We have Stacey Rogers, Cheryl Carruthers, Karen Ridley and Paisley Thompson. Thank you very much, guys. Um, it still blows us away when anybody signs up to support us on Patreon. You can support us for a short time or a long time. But when you do sign up, you get access to everything. So if you sign up for our most popular tier, you'll gain immediate access to our back catalogue of bonus episodes. I think we've just released episode 42. So it is like a season and a half of seeing red over there. And you'll also gain access to our back catalogue of Crime Wave. I think we've got 20 plus episodes of that. And we release a new episode every two weeks. Yes, so loads of extra content and loads of other stuff going on over there. So all you need to do if you want to check it out is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Today we'll be covering this roller coaster of a case that will bring us through the ups and downs of Arthur Hutchinson's life. And because this man wasted no time becoming a menace to society, there is an immediate need for a trigger warning for sexual assault, rape, violence and bodily harm. Please note this podcast is not for children. Now, before we talk about Arthur, Daniel has put a little bit of gossip in, which we all love a bit of a gossip, don't we, Mark? God, I love gossip and I've regularly been told off at work for gossiping. Daniel knows you well. So Daniel's put, I'd like to tell you a little bit of gossip about Louise. Arthur's mother. Louise was married, but not to Arthur's father. Louise and her husband and their children lived in a large home, so they used it as a sort of boarding house. They had tenants that would rent from them from time to time, and it helped them to make some extra cash. Well, Louise went and fell in love with one of these tenants and found herself pregnant. Some sources say that she left her husband and ended up marrying Arthur's father, who Arthur was named after, and they went on to have more children together. But other sources say that she stayed with her current husband and they worked things out and moved on. Daniel's not sure how well it would go over with her naming Arthur after his biological father, so he's not really sure which scenario is factual, but we do love a little bit of a a bit of a gossip anyway, don't we? We do, especially back in the day, because I am I right in thinking this was very early forties? Exactly. Nineteen forties, yeah. So this that if that is true, that would have been absolutely scandalous. Not so, so much scandalous, now. absolutely. But this isn't a story about Louise's affairs. So regardless, Arthur Hutchinson was born on February the 19th, 1941 in Hartlepool, County Durham. His mother quickly took to him and vice versa. And although she had other children, she often felt the need to protect Arthur, even from them, because they would bully him. They'd call him illegitimate and a bastard. And though as a child, this is hurtful, it did turn out to be 
true. Still really savage, isn't it? It, it is savage, but I, I don't know. There's something almost funny about his own brother's and sisters uh, if their sisters they're calling him a bastard it's like this is your own flesh and blood and yes he might have had another well had a different biological dad but yeah so aside from being bullied by his own siblings arthur didn't have a rough childhood per se his mother treated him like gold he enjoyed school and he was overall still a good kid when he was very young he was diagnosed with meningitis which consumed him and he was bedridden where his mother had to dote on him for months before he made this miraculous recovery and this drew them closer it really solidified their bond. When Arthur was still pretty young so sometime before he was seven years old he was riding his bicycle through the neighbourhood and he ran into a telephone pole hard enough to give himself a traumatic brain injury. So he did recover from this brain injury but some people have suggested that there was permanent damage Some have suggested that this was his turning point, that before that he was a normal kid, but after this accident is when his violent tendencies began to form. Now, don't get me wrong, a brain injury alone is not enough to cause violence, and many people have brain injuries and don't become murderers and rapists. In Arthur Hutchinson's case, though, when you have so many things working together at once, it seems to kind of add up, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, because you've also got this worrying fact that the mum is treating him like gold and has this really super close relationship with him. And we see that quite often as well in people that go on to commit crimes. They've they've quite often had a an insanely close bond with their own mother. So that's always a bit of a warning for me for what the future's going to hold. Agreed, 100%. And there was some sort of cognitive impairment that happened at or around this time in his life. And it wasn't long after that that he began acting on his violent urges. And Daniel said here, we can discuss nature versus natural we want, but in cases like this, it is really hard to say. So like you just mentioned, Mark, was Arthur born this way? Was it the constant insults from his siblings, the favouritism his mother showed him, the brain injury? Did all of these things and more kind of shape him into the difficult and violent child he became later? Or was he born to be bad and evil? Yeah, it's always a difficult one. With this, personally, I kind of think there's a whole maelstrom of issues in early childhood that, that, yeah, must be contributing to his behaviour in his later years, in his teens and beyond. Because, yeah, just one of these things is enough, perhaps, to set him on the path of violence and destruction. So, yeah, I I personally think it's probably more nurture than than nature, this one. But I don't know. I'm not an expert. So it wasn't long after this that Arthur began acting on these violent urges. In fact, it wasn't much later at all. At only seven years old, Arthur stabbed his sister with scissors well enough to draw blood thankfully there was no permanent damage and there's no record of how Arthur's mother handled this situation and I can't imagine having to parent this situation or what would have been going through her head but no matter how wrong Arthur was he could do no wrong in her eyes in this situation and many others his mother still took him up after the fact and the enabling old woman even bragged to people how Arthur was her favourite out of her children so she was openly telling people this. Arthur's juvenile record wasn't as easy to dig up as his adult, but there were several more arrests before he became an adult. He made at least 19 court appearances before his 18th birthday, not only for assaults, but also for burglary. At only 11 years old, he was charged with indecent assault, and four of the court appearances were due to having sex with young girls, 
But for some reason, he never really was given any real repercussions. He had no incentive to change his behaviour. He would get arrested, got a slap on the wrist and then released and would do it all over again. His sense of ego and entitlement only grew each time that this happened, enabled by a failing juvenile justice system and his own mother. But no one is mum blaming though, because who knows how anyone would really react to having such a difficult child like Arthur. Would you disown them? Would you banish them? Or do your maternal instincts kick in and convince you that you can love all of the hate out of them? Maybe if you coddle them enough, you can make them forget all their sorrows and their rage. And Daniel has said he personally does not blame Louise for the way that Arthur turns out. She seemed to have given him all the love that she could. So he says that in his opinion, with nature versus nurture, Arthur seems to be very nurtured and it potentially isn't that side of things. I definitely agree with you though, Mark, in that there's one thing for loving a child, but there's also one thing with not giving them any sort of discipline and structure and potentially just allowing them to do whatever they want. I think she's, I think she has been an enabler here. Yeah, I think I think she's reinforced his behaviour, as have the courts, because he's been up in court 19 times before his 18th birthday, and each time he's gotten away with what he's done. And I think that as well is just going to add to the this sense of entitlement and that I'm invincible, I can behave however I want to and I can get away with it. There are no repercussions for me. Add in this enabling mother and yeah, it's a, a crock of shit really for... Uh, for what shapes him into adulthood. I think what's really interesting is is da- Daniel's right. You don't really know as a mother how you would, or a father too, how you would behave in this circumstance, whether you would go overboard and feel that your child needs more love and nurturing and care, or whether, whether you would back up from them. So I can kind of understand why Louise has actually gone a bit overboard on it that that's kind of a natural reaction from mom I guess it's such a tricky one isn't it recently there's um been a case locally where the young guy who is the perpetrator he's not been named because he is under 18 but his mum was actually the one who took him to the police station and handed him over when the police were looking for him and I always think like that is incredibly brave because you know you're not protecting them anymore and you know what they've done is is so wrong it's yeah it's a real discussion maybe we'll put a quite a question like this up on the facebook group or something get a bit of a discussion around it because you just don't know do you and no, unless you're no. in that situation and let's hope none of us ever are and we never have to find out So by the age of 18, Arthur was already a career criminal. As soon as he was legally able to get married, he did. And he married a woman called Margaret Dover, his neighbour. Not long after they were married, they had a child. And you're probably thinking Arthur might settle down now, worry about his family, build a life for them, get his shit together. But no, he definitely did not do any of that. In fact, he did the total opposite. He physically, mentally and emotionally abused his wife. His mood swings were unpredictable and he also had the audacity to cheat on her. So that's right, Arthur's still out there whilst having a wife and kid at home, having sex with other women, openly bragging about it and he was also still assaulting women too. To be fair, there were several women who consented to sleeping with Arthur and, you know, those women are allowed to do what they want but they definitely were feeding into this ego of his and he began to think of himself as a ladies' man. He had a big head and he felt like he could say or do whatever he wanted to women. 
Finally, after three gruelling years of marriage, Margaret managed to find the courage to divorce Arthur. And I always find, especially with talking about the 40s here, that is incredibly brave, isn't it? Yeah, I always forget that you could, you actually could still divorce uh, back then, because we're talking about nearly 100 years ago now. And it was such a different time. There were so many prejudices, particularly around uh, people having affairs and unmarried mothers and all of that kind of stuff. So you still think that divorce is massively frowned upon, but I suppose it's not because it's been happening for hundreds of years since Henry VIII, wasn't it? So um, or before that, probably. But yeah, it's um, it always shocks me a little bit that it was a thing and that people did instigate it and f- go through with it. And we're talking nearly 100 years ago. I also think as well to not be married, but to have children must have been incredibly hard then, because even when you think as as late as sort of the 60s and 70s, if you became a mother, you would stop working. You didn't have a career and be a mother. And Um, I remember Chris's grandparents talking about how when they got married, obviously she had to stop work. It was just kind of like a a given. Whereas now that just isn't at all. And it's, yeah, it's just, I just think fair play to Margaret for that because she actually did, you know, three years she she put up with this and then she was like, nope, no more. And and in a way, that's not that long, three years. It's kind of like she's put up with it for a period of time and then she's she's gone, no, she's called time on it pretty quickly, I think. Because even 10 years, you would say, well, actually, good for her. She got out of it. Yeah. But three years is actually, I know it can be a long time when you're going through that level of, level of abuse, but actually, I kind of think that's pretty quick for her to call time on it and say, no, this isn't working. Yeah. And naturally, this divorce pissed Arthur off, but he was also thrilled to be single again. So single Arthur, back out on the town, goes out trying to pick up women, of course. And Arthur was known to be in shape. He enjoyed staying in shape, staying sharp, body and mind. So he would seek out jobs that kept him fit, some manual labour types of jobs. And he was even described as charming by some women. So when he did get rejected, Arthur did not take this lightly and he began aggressively assaulting women. After a string of victims, he landed himself in prison for the first time at the age of 22 for unlawful sexual intercourse. But he was only sentenced to five years. So it's kind of like another slap on the wrist, really, for Arthur, and quite an insulting sentence for his numerous victims. And Daniel said here it's infuriating, which I completely agree with, because if you think about all the things Arthur has done up to this point in his life, Starting at the age of seven when he stabbed his sister, he's now 22 years old, it's 15 years later, and he's only now really seeing any real consequences for his actions. And actually, those 15 years are through his real formative years, those are the the years in which he learns his self-control and what shapes his life. He's now 22, and they say that you don't get full self-control and awareness until the age of 25 so he's only now really going to get some sort of consequence and even then it's not a massive it's five years it's come too late hasn't it unfortunately because there's a pattern of behavior and it seems against women or girls uh, when he was a child there's this pattern of behavior and he's gotten away with it for so long and that's such a huge 
portion of his life that's three quarters of his life that he's been able to act with impunity and then yes there are consequences now he's 22 like you say it's not that severe and it's kind of just too late because that behavior is now ingrained in him and what comes through with all of this again was just that massive sense of entitlement i you know i'm gonna try it on with this woman and attempt to have sex with her. She rebuffs those advances. How dare she? So I'll assault her as payback. He can't quite understand that a woman wouldn't want to have sex with him and therefore he will get retribution for that. It's just all so wrong. And as soon as Arthur got out of prison, he started looking for work. Obviously, he needs to make some money. And he didn't actually get arrested for this. But Daniel says it's such a typical Arthur thing to do. So he got a job as a postman but was later fired for stealing people's wages out of the post. Ridiculous. And he may not have been arrested for that petty crime, but he was soon picked back up for assault. He went back to jail, did some time, came out, looked for work, assaulted someone again, and the cycle just continued. At 27 years old, Arthur was released from another stint in prison, and he again began looking for work. He ended up being employed at a chicken factory, which is where he would meet his second wife. Her name has been redacted from most public records. So for that reason, we will not be naming her either. She obviously wants her anonymity. Regardless, she was very young at the time. She was 16 years old. And don't forget, Arthur was 27. Bit gross, isn't it? So they got married and she quickly ended up pregnant with his second child. Again, we're probably all hoping that Arthur would get his head out of his ass and step up, be a man, help raise his kids, be a solid husband. But it seems that he basically treated his second wife even worse than Margaret, his first wife. She claimed that as soon as she moved in with him, he began to beat her. The beatings were non-stop. He would also rape her. There were no allegations of his first wife making claims of rape, although they wouldn't be as shocking. But his second wife stated, he kicked me from here to hell and he would rape and rape and rape and rape me. That's all he did. And she even stated that he was sometimes abusive towards his mother, which was quite shocking because of that bond that they had and how much she really did for him right up until the bitter end. And most sources agree that this wasn't out of fear either. She truly believed that he was a good man and her son and she loved him. But his second wife claims to have seen Arthur fling his mother out of her rocking chair and across the room. There was no context to what caused Arthur to react this way towards his mum, but It's just bonkers. This was her favourite child and he's behaving like this. His second wife also claimed that Arthur could be very charming, which is how she found herself in this situation to begin with. He was charming and charismatic, but his mood swings were brought on by little to nothing. It was like the flip of a switch and boom, Arthur would be violent again. That is interesting though, isn't it? Because I think that brain injury that he suffered, that is that that would explain this kind of sudden switch this flip of a switch and boom he's violent again that can happen that can happen as a result of a severe brain injury so yeah that does make me think that that his behavior in this regard this violence could be as a result of that specifically and her claiming he was charming and charismatic is unsettling but makes sense when you remember he manipulated a 16 year old like basically a child into marrying him someone who's so impressionable and naive at 16 you don't know what love looks like so naturally a 16 year old girl being swooned over by an older man she was bound to eventually feel charmed and you can understand how this charming charismatic man could do this but luckily after another short-lived three-year marriage she filed for divorce and decided to leave Arthur but he punished her so when she told him that she was leaving 
he actually dragged her out into the street in front of their home and he beat her there, leaving her for neighbours to see. He didn't care about anything, consequences had proven to evade him, and so he continued to live like a scumbag for the next decade. He continued the same patterns of rape, assault, intimidation, manipulation and bullying. And he was again convicted of several more rapes, and again he served little to no time for these crimes. By this point now, Arthur is in his 30s and he's realising that there really aren't very drastic consequences for his actions. He had been a repeat offender for longer than anyone can fathom. He had been a danger to not only random women but also his wives and even his own beloved mother. Still, after all these high crimes with low sentences, he really had no desire to change. No reason to, because every time he found himself in trouble, he would serve a little time and be released again. And again, his mum would take him back in, giving him love and shelter and making excuses for his behaviour. Then, in 1972, he was arrested for unlawful sexual intercourse. Now, the plethora of names that they came up with for rape is quite annoying If we called it like it was, maybe his crimes wouldn't be brushed under the rug or taken so lightly. Arthur was a serial rapist. But we have to remember this is the 70s, the laws and the crimes and the convictions, the words for everything was was very different. And this time, Arthur was sentenced to three years in prison. Yeah, it's it's mind-bendingly frustrating because... um that that he would just not serve a, a serious sentence for what is such a serious crime and they're just diminishing that crime by calling it unlawful sexual intercourse. It's rape, absolutely. This is a serial rapist and he should have been serving 10, 15 year sentences for every charge or every time he's brought before a court charged with multiple counts of rape. He should have been in prison for, for more than 10 years each time and he's just doing three years or less. It's an absolute joke. Even though it's in the 70s, I get all of that. But it does just show how much we've moved on, doesn't it, in in this time? Oh, 100%. So following his time served, when he was released, Arthur went to live with his brother Dino. He didn't have contact with the rest of his family anymore, apart from his mum, of course. So Dino was willing to give him a place to stay, help him get back on his feet. And Dino footed the bill for everything. Rent, fuel, groceries, you name it. Arthur used this opportunity not to build his life back up and get a job, No, of course not. He stayed unemployed and instead he filed for assistance, claiming he had no income and that he lived alone, that he was unable to make his rent. So he claimed benefits to help subsidise these non-existent bills. And instead of helping the brother that had helped him, he didn't give Dino a dime. Instead, he kept this to himself and pocketed the money. And when Dino found out about this little scheme, naturally he was pissed off and he confronted Arthur and then told him that he couldn't live there anymore. So he had to pack his things and move out immediately. Entitled old Arthur did not respond well to this. He acted as if it was his own house and he deserved to live there. He was infuriated with Dino, especially after the police got involved. So this was in 1978 when Arthur was then investigated for social security fraud and he couldn't help but think that Dino must have been the one who turned him in. And in retaliation to Dino kicking him out and potentially, or according to Arthur, definitely being the one to rat on him, he decided he was going to try and kill his own brother. You can really see at this point how his violence is escalating. He's not only assaulting countless women, but now he's turning on his own family, the ones who've always helped him out of sicky situations. This is the only one of his family who's really tried to help him. I suppose we don't know the full history because it could be that Dino had bullied Arthur 
in childhood, so Arthur's siblings had bullied him. Maybe Dino was one of the siblings who didn't, or maybe he had done that. So maybe Arthur felt like there was potentially a score to settle here anyway. Yeah, maybe. And so Arthur got a gun. Some sources say it was a sawn-off shotgun, and he waited in the bushes near to Dino's house. Dino worked odd hours, night shift hours, so when he arrived back at home it wasn't until 7 o'clock in the morning and naturally he didn't notice his brother sat in the bushes. But when Dino pulled up, Arthur ran out and shot at him. Luckily he was not a good shot and he missed Dino, who I'm sure was frazzled and continued driving and was able to get away. When the police found Arthur, he was charged with attempted murder and for carrying a concealed weapon and was sentenced to five and a half years in prison. So still another sentence that doesn't fit the crime, but he was off the streets for a while. And what he did with his time in prison was not constructive, of course. So he didn't bother trying to be rehabilitated. He didn't attend Bible study. He didn't make friends. Nothing productive, really, aside from sporadic reading. No, he used this time to plot his next scheme. So one day when he was reading the newspaper, he came across an article about a woman who had come across a large sum of money and it was apparently inherited. So she was recently divorced, purchased a new bungalow and she was just trying to live her best life having come upon this large sum of money. And Arthur became fixated on her and her story. I don't know, thinking he wanted to live that life with her perhaps. And so he read about her, really wanted to know more about her, where the bungalow was located, and he even drew maps in the back of one of the books. He not only drew a map to the bungalow itself, but he knew he couldn't go out and find this place. He also drew a map of the interior. So he studied the photos of this bungalow and imagined where the rooms were placed. And when Arthur was finally released, he was actually allowed to take the book with him. So Arthur by now is in his 40s. He had spent plenty of time in prison, though not nearly enough for the crimes he's committed. You would think that when he was released, he tried to savour his freedom, keep himself out of trouble, but no, instead he thrived on all of his pent-up urges and he wasted absolutely no time in going to find this unfortunate woman. So he gets to her bungalow and instead of making a move right away, he hides out in the bushes, making a kind of camp there and he watched her and her new boyfriend for days. They were just living their normal lives. They were having sex, they were showering, you name it. He just creeped on them until he felt the time was right. Although he did need money, so one day when they left, he went inside and grabbed the woman's checkbook, which was really silly because he couldn't actually cash her checks, so he just went back to watching them. And he thought to himself, I'll present myself to this woman and she will want me. Really delusional, as we've seen time and time again with Arthur. So he waited for the boyfriend to leave one day and he did that. He just presented himself to her fully nude. And obviously she completely rejected him because who's going to be swept off their feet by a dirty caveman that's been living in their bushes and just stood there all naked? But what the hell? She's not going to go, oh, let's let's go. Like, of and course she's going to be just disgusted. fucking weird. Yeah, you're not anybody that does that. You're just going to think it's a flasher. It's really. just so creepy, And you're going to feel really it? threatened by it, yeah. But obviously, Arthur wasn't expecting to get rejected, so he assaulted her. And in the midst of this assault, she actually managed to tear off his necklace. After Arthur had finished assaulting her, she used it to her advantage, kind of humanising her, uh, humanising him, sorry, in that moment. It's really amazing for her to kind of think to do this, but she commented on the necklace, saying it seemed to be a special charm. Maybe it was a family heirloom and how sorry she was for breaking it. And she then suggested a place in town that could fix him, fix it for him, and he agreed to go and get it fixed. 
what an absolute idiot, but fair play to this woman because he went straight there afterwards to go and get his necklace fixed. She went straight to the police and told them that's where he's headed. They surrounded the jewellery shop and arrested him. So fair play to her. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. To She's been viciously assaulted. She she could have been raped by him and she might have been thinking that and that she was going to be murdered by him. And she had, the yeah, just a, a way of trying to get him nailed, basically. It's, yeah, super clever. So he then went back to prison. And then after being released from prison, he was caught again for burglary and rape. And Daniel says he couldn't help but wonder during his research how long the police and the justice system could let this cycle continue. It's unbelievable, he says, how he's managed to get away with what, with only minimal time served or sometimes none at all. So we're now in 1983 and Arthur was held in custody whilst awaiting his court hearing. Whilst Arthur was waiting, he decided prison really wasn't for him, didn't want to go back. So instead of not just committing crimes, he plotted another scheme. During his court appearance, he put this plan into action. He asked the prison officers who had handcuffed him if he could use the toilet and they agreed. He asked to be uncuffed because it would be too difficult and they uncuffed him. Not only did they uncuff him, they also didn't even escort him to the bathrooms and... Daniel says he really hopes that these incompetent men were fired after this because had they not been so careless, Arthur would have been sentenced and he would have been sent to prison again. But instead, Arthur managed to escape because the courthouse in this town was attached to the police station. Everything was in pretty close quarters. He basically went out of a bathroom window, which is Ted Bundy vibes, isn't it, really? Um, And he just fled. I mean, I get the uh, uncuffing him, fine, if he needs to use the bathroom. And we don't know what what he kind of needed to do there. So he might have absolutely needed his hands and stuff. But just escort him in there. And that's normal. That's what happens. Don't just leave him. It's just pretty stupid of them. So yeah, I'm with Daniel. I think they, I hope they did lose their jobs as a result of that. Because I'm like you say, he would have gone into prison and he didn't, and I'm sure he went on to commit further crimes and more suffering as a result of their incompetence. So I blame them. So Daniel says, when I say that this man jumped out of a window, he jumped out of a closed window. So um, he doesn't know if he just couldn't get it open or if adrenaline took over, but basically um, he kind of jumped through it. And not only did he injure his leg from the fall, he also landed on some barbed wire. So it wasn't very well planned. Um, you know, he didn't choose a window. It must have been reasonably spur of the moment, planned to make an escape in some way. And he was really severely injured. Obviously, that's not part of his plan, but he still managed to escape before anyone could catch up to him. Search warrants were issued and police emphasis was heavy on finding him because they knew he was a danger to society. Nice to see them finally take notice of that, says Daniel. And I think, yep, I agree there. They knew he was injured and he'd eventually need medical attention, so hospitals were also issued alerts to be on the lookout. Despite his injuries, Arthur did manage to run for miles, far enough that the police weren't able to track him down. He hid out in woodlands, hid in bushes, fell off the radar for a few days. And finally, a few days later, sources say three, some sources say four, he ended up at a hospital 19 miles away from where he originally escaped. And when he went into the hospital, Arthur was treated with no questions asked. They had no idea who he was. They didn't bother to inquire as to how he'd got these injuries. He did need antibiotics, though, which weren't available at the time. 
but they would order them in in the next three days or so. So the doctor instructed him to take it easy, come back in a few days for his medicine. Arthur did anything but take it easy though. So not only was he literally living in the woods, probably not a prime location for someone with open wounds, he also spent time robbing people. It's what you do, isn't it, while you're very sick and waiting for antibiotics. Went back to get his medication and then continued on the run. So he went back to the woods and he lived rough. He claims to have survived off plants and roots and although he was in pretty rough shape, he managed to avoid capture for another three and a half weeks. But by that time, he was weak, fatigued and starved. Unfortunately, Daniel says, not starved enough to just wither away though, which did make me chuckle. I I think even prison would have been a better option at this point for Arthur because he's living in the woods eating fucking plants for weeks at a time with rotting wounds i just think he'd have been better off in prison maybe he just kind of accepted that himself in the end so on october the 23rd 1983 this is when arthur committed his most gruesome crime yet and this is what they called the wedding day massacre it all went down at the leitner family home now i remember hearing a podcast about this case um quite a while ago and i want to say potentially it was paul's show the true crime enthusiast but i'm not sure so i wonder if as we get into this particular part of arthur's story whether you'll also recognize this as well mark interesting yeah because i don't i don't recognize his name or the run up to this so yeah we'll see so it was an otherwise beautiful day the Leitner family, their oldest daughter Susan had gotten married to her wonderful husband and the whole family was there, all of their friends. It was one hell of a party. And the Leitner family was well-to-do in this community. Avril, the mum, was a doctor. Basil, the father, was a solicitor. And they were big in the community. Everyone seemed to really love these people. So naturally, the wedding was a huge event and a lot of the people in their tight-knit community had attended. Sadly, this is what caught Arthur's attention as he fled through the village. He heard the celebrations and saw the giant marquee. Now, apparently, in America, a marquee is like a sign, but for UK listeners, we would understand it as basically a big giant white tent that's put up for parties. And so Arthur spotted this marquee, this giant tent, and he thought there'd probably some food and booze and maybe a lady that he could score. So he watched the party from afar. The whole party from the dancing, cake cutting... Mainly, he watched Nicola, the youngest daughter. She was a beautiful 18-year-old who glided all around in her bridesmaid's dress and was just really enjoying the night with her family, her big sister's wedding. Arthur decided that he wanted Nicola. He became fixated on her. So he waited for the party to wind down and for the guests to leave. At around 11pm, Arthur made his way to the marquee to find some food. And we all wish that this is where he stopped, but no. He then continued on to the Leitner family home where Basil, Avril, Nicola, their older brother Richard, were getting ready to turn in for the evening. He snuck in through an unlocked patio door and began walking through the house looking for Nicola's bedroom. And he somehow made it upstairs without anyone noticing he was in the home. When he spotted her bridesmaid's dress hanging on one of the room doors, he assumed it was hers, but he opened the door and realised it was her brother's room. 28-year-old Richard was awake and he saw Arthur, but Arthur wasn't going to let anyone stand in his way. He had a one-track mind. So he ambushed Richard with a bowie knife. One of the detectives on this case said it was the largest bowie knife that he had ever seen. It might as well have been a sword. And Arthur stabbed Richard twice in the chest and then continued to go and look for Nicola. 
As he searched for her, though, Basil had started making his way up the stairs to see what the commotion was about, and he was met by Arthur, who killed him as he tried to argue and ask him to leave. Basil was stabbed twice in the throat and once in the back and then left on the steps. Of course, naturally, Avril then came scrambling out of her bedroom. She was at the foot of the stairs yelling, "Taking, take the money and leave, thinking this was someone robbing the house, but it wasn't what Arthur had wanted. So he charged at Avril, and although she fought like hell, he managed to kill her. Over 25 stab wounds were inflicted while she fought back, and the fatal one was to her throat. So now Arthur knew that three of the four family members were dead, which left him with exactly what he had come for, and he continued looking for Nicola. And when he found her, she was absolutely petrified. She had just heard her whole family get murdered outside her bedroom door. And then this strange man came barging in. She was in the dark, so Arthur turned on his torch and he shone it on her. And in the following hours, she was subjected to unthinkable acts of assault by knife point. He took her from her bedroom through the house, past all of her dead family members, out into the marquee, where he handcuffed her to a fixture and forced her to sit and watch as he ate leftovers, drank champagne, bragged about murdering her family, going into detail about how he'd stalked his prey, and then he raped her again until sunrise and fled, not before telling her to take care of yourself. What a scumbag. God, I, I do recall it now, and I'm sure it was Paul, the true crime enthusiast, that maybe covered it very early on in his show, uh, I remember I remember listening to it years and years and years ago and it's coming back to me and this this part of it is just so incredibly disturbing the fact that he's killed members of her family he's then marched her past all of their bodies she's seen all of that he's tying her up acting all nonchalant while he drinks champagne and eats and then tells her about all of the pain and suffering that he has inflicted on her family and how he's killed them and he's raping her repeatedly. You couldn't, you honestly couldn't make this up, could you? It's so barbaric. It's some of the worst stuff we've ever seen. It reminds me a bit, and I quite often go back to it, of the murder of um, the two French students in New Cross that we covered years ago now. And they endured a whole night of torture before being killed and their living room resembled an abattoir by the time their murderer had finished with them. And this is similar, this kind of level of torture, really. So the assault that he's he's inflicting upon her by knife point, the rape, um, everything that she is witnessing and feet, it's just, yeah, you can't put yourself, and obviously you wouldn't want to, and you couldn't do it anyway, but you can't even really imagine how it must feel to go through what she went through. It's just, yeah, it's just horrific, isn't it? The following morning, workers let themselves in. They'd been instructed not to disturb the family. They were there for the marquee, so they went straight there, but they arrived and saw Nicola tied up, too distraught to speak, and they noticed her and her nightgown were covered in blood. They knew this was a crime scene, and they phoned the police immediately. And at first, Nicola was too traumatised to talk, but when she finally did, she gave the detective such a detailed description of Arthur and what had happened that they called a sketch artist to draw him. And once the sketch was complete, the officers actually knew immediately who this culprit was, Arthur Hutchinson. So kudos to Nicola for being able to overcome the traumatic events and divulge specifics with the police, because it's hard to remember such intricate details, even as you know in a normal day, but especially in the midst of something so brutal and shocking. So she really pulled herself together and, and told the police as much as she possibly could. And also at the crime scene, they were able to gather lots of evidence. So a handprint left on a champagne flute, 
a dental imprint where Arthur had taken a bite out of a block of cheese. And in 1984, they would use blood typing and blood grouping. There wasn't DNA yet, but luckily Arthur had a rare blood type, which was found in a knee print on Nicola's bed and also along with his semen. So they ran what they gathered from the scene and they confirmed it was definitely Arthur, although there was no doubt in their minds, it was just confirmation. They'd been looking for him for weeks at this point. They knew they needed to kind of band together with other forces to find him. This was a violent, dangerous man who was not going to stop until he was caught. So this became one of the largest manhunts to ever hit the UK. Again, Arthur disappeared, but when he started seeing articles published about the murders, he realised he quite liked the attention. And after almost four weeks on the run, you'd think he'd continue to do whatever was working for him. But instead, this kind of boosted his ego and his confidence. So he'd actually go into hotels and pubs where he'd stay, but brag about his crimes. And how no one recognised him is beyond me, because they'd asked the public for help, which was kind of the step in the investigation, issuing pictures of Arthur nationwide, details of his criminal background, people were terrified. And this was happening in the same sort of area as the Yorkshire Ripper had been really prevalent not too long afterwards people wondered if Arthur was this next big serial killer and yet lots of people didn't even recognize it's it's really fascinating isn't it It, it's really weird that he was going into pubs for example and boasting about the crimes he committed because quite often killers will uh, confide in one or two people and they will boast because it's almost like it's not happened if they're the only one that knows about it so I kind of understand their desire to talk about it but it's weird that he would usually they would do that with a loved one or some kind of lesser accomplice or someone in the underworld you you, I just can't believe he's going into like random pubs ordering a pint of Stella or whatever it would have been in the 80s and talking to randomers about what he's done but maybe they were drunk and that's why they didn't recognize him afterwards when the police appealed who knows But this media attention really got him going. He was craving being famous. So maybe that's the other reason he was going into places. He kind of couldn't help himself. And Arthur began writing to local papers. He even had a telephone interview with one journalist. He baited the police and taunted them. He boasted about his crimes and how he was smarter than them. And he even gave himself a nickname in the letter that he wrote to the police. So he signed it The Fox, which is just cringe that's cringe you can't give yourself your Mm -hmm. own nickname that's unacceptable no so he said i'm living rough like the police have said stealing out of people's backyards cabbages and things like that i sleep by day and travel by night i'm not a hoax so i'm not going to give myself up signed the fox so the fox because he thought he was sly and he bragged about these crimes saying he was too cunning to get caught he was a master of disguise how he had passed police officers several times been right under their noses he was a fox on the trot which oh he's just a creep isn't he he's just weird it's really immature as well the writing style is just incredibly immature too so it says a lot about mm-hmm. him yeah and that probably some so a huge level actually of d- delayed emotional development in childhood is evident through this. I mean, look at me sounding like Emma fucking Kenny, but I, you know, I, I would guess that's what's at play, isn't it? There's just a real lack of emotional intelligence. Oh, 100%. Such a lack of emotional intelligence is so true. He's just, oh, he's just frustrating, I think. He is, he's like a child. This is childish behaviour. He is, yeah. Yeah. So the local police forces banded together in a real prime example of how jurisdictions and resources should be combined. 
By the time, um, by this point, it was kind of two weeks after the murders, about five and a half weeks on the run for Arthur, he ended up with nine police forces and thousands of officers hunting him down. And they felt that his capture could be chaotic, but they swore they wouldn't take any chances, they would take him out on sight if necessary. And a manhunt like this today would be broadcast day and night. The tips were flooding in from concerned citizens to the point where the police station had to borrow a computer from a local manufacturer so that they could keep things organised. But even with all the information and all the officers working around the clock, they couldn't find Arthur, so they decided to play on his weaknesses. So they began commenting on his injuries, how he's going to need medical attention and medication. They told people to check their gardens for bodies because they wanted him to really worry about the condition he was in. But this didn't work, so they then used his mum to draw him out. So after much convincing, Louise agreed to let them use her as bait. She was getting older, she wasn't in the best of health, so they broadcasted this and kind of exaggerated it in the hopes that Arthur would see it, saying that her health had been deteriorating and they even showed a clip of her being taken to hospital. After seeing this on the news, Arthur called his mum from a close-by payphone and told her he would be there by 4am. Obviously, the phone was tapped and at this point, the police had 400 officers surrounding the area along with their dogs. Unfortunately, this time they didn't have a police helicopter, but conveniently, one of the local officers was a part-time pilot and he had his own aircraft, so he circled overhead during the search. And this was actually the first time an aircraft was used to aid in the capture of a fugitive in the area, which I thought was really sweet of that um, police officer to be like, I'll use mine. So at this point, Arthur had been on the run for 39 days and he was spotted approaching his mum's house. He was casually strolling along about a mile away. Naturally, when he spotted the police, he tried to run, but they just had too many mounts. Naturally, when he spotted the police, he tried to run, but they had too much manpower and they were able to subdue him. After almost six weeks on the run, Arthur was finally in custody. And during his arrest, he stated, I should have stayed down my foxhole, but he didn't. He got caught. It's cringe, isn't it? It is. It's Yeah, really cringe. I love that police work, though, how that, that one thing really of... Uh, bigging up his mum's ill health which wasn't necessarily overly true photographing her or reporting in the media that she was going to hospital and he sees that and has the relationship with his mum that he had and loved her and that that was his downfall really good so when Arthur finally made it to court he had the audacity to plead not guilty at his trial so he thought he could fight this probably because most of his life he had gotten away with his crimes so he testified that the sex with Nicola was consensual that she had invited him in and because he pled not guilty Nicola had to come and testify and relive those brutal rapes and the murder of her family members and I can't help but think that Arthur probably did that on purpose because he loved to see people in pain and he loved to watch people suffer The defence kept drilling Nicola about wanting to have sex with Arthur, about inviting him in. And she broke down on the stand saying she wanted to go home, but she was so brave even to show up. And she knew that no matter how difficult it might be, by voicing her story, she could help to take him down. And luckily, once the jury saw her heartbreaking testimony, they had no doubt whatsoever that the sex was non-consensual. Arthur's trial lasted 10 days, and during this time, the jury was shown a seven-minute video of the crime scene, the first time a video was ever shown to a jury in the UK and such. And on the 14th of September 1984, at age 42, Arthur was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 18 years. The way the UK system worked at this time was that the judge would suggest a sentence to the Home Secretary, then the Home Secretary would consider it and set the sentence accordingly. 
And thankfully, the Home Secretary decided that this was not sufficient, so it was overruled, and they actually gave him a whole life tariff. So that meant that he would never be released in prison. And this was really rare at the time. Arthur was the first person to receive a whole life tariff. It had only just become a thing prior to his sentencing, so thank goodness it had. The Home Secretary at the time, Michael Howard, took an extremely tough stance on crime, and his predecessor took the opposing stance. Ken Clark stated, Prison has proven to be a costly and ineffective approach that fails our criminals and doesn't turn them into law-abiding citizens. They kind of went back and forth opinions and used these as political tools, but didn't really educate the public on what goes into sentencing. Now, Daniels also put he'd like to note that at the time it was the Home Office policy not to disclose to the prisoners what their sentences were. So Arthur was sentenced to a whole life tariff in 1988, but he didn't actually get told this until 1994. That is weird. Isn't that so weird? That is so weird. I can't get my head around that. So I, it's almost a bit like, um, yeah, would you, would you as a prisoner prefer to know or not? I think I would, I don't know if it's a whole life tariff, maybe not, but otherwise I would want to know that. That's that's inhumane, I think, to not tell somebody what their sentence is. That's not right. So I'm glad that's been changed. Yeah, the fact that convicted criminals weren't told their sentences were later regulated with legal challenges and petitions. And when Arthur found out about his sentence, he was less than thrilled. And he, you know, and similar to you just said, he went to the European Court of Human Rights saying it was inhumane. And he was the first person to appeal to the high courts. The victims' families were livid. And each time the courts entertained his appeals, it dug up the memories of the family. And he almost did get his own way at one point. The court judgment decided it was unlawful to have to serve a whole life tariff. So all prisoners who got these sentences had them reverted back to their original sentences. So Arthur's judge, when they were reviewing these, came back with 18 years Home security said absolutely fucking not and gave him back his whole life tariff. Um, So it was kind of like all over the shop, really. But basically, they were like, we've got this for a reason. And he had to. So Arthur did continue to file appeals over the decades. All of them were denied. But he was also denied compassionate release for his dad's funeral. um, Probably because they knew he'd try and escape, I should imagine. And Daniel's put, there wasn't an ounce of Arthur that deserved compassion, which I thought was very scathing and very true. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You've you've renounced your right to be able to attend your father's funeral when you have murdered people and raped people. I've got no compassion there. Normally, I would sort of, for anybody, I would have some compassion and think they should have done that and he is a human being and all of that. But with him, I'm I'm just like, no, no, you shouldn't have got to attend and you can live with that for the rest of your life. I'm so with you on that as well. So in 2015, before his 74th birthday, the courts concluded that not a single one of Arthur's appeals would be overturned and that he would never be released. So to this day, 81-year-old Arthur Hutchinson is still in prison, has served over almost 40 years, and this makes him the third longest serving prisoner in all of the UK. Even still, he's a danger to other prisoners. He boasts about his crimes. He claims he would kill any remaining family members if he was ever to be released. I know a lot of inmates will say stuff like that. It's out of anger. They want to, you know, invoke fear, get attention. But Daniel says, and I agree with Daniel here, to be honest, in Arthur's case, he truly believes that Arthur would want to track down the remaining family members of Nicholas if given the opportunity. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised. I think he would struggle at the age of 81. 
I think he's done really well to even get to that age because the average age for a man uh, survive, uh, sort of what do they call it? You know, when when the average age of when people die, uh, survival rate, life whatever. expectancy, life expectancy. I knew it was called yeah. something. Uh, so the average life expectancy for a man in this country is seventy nine, and in prison the life expectancy is a lot less because it's a dangerous place to be. The food ain't great, and the access to medical care and attention and daylight and all of that is also shit. So he's done really well to get to eighty one. To be fair. So we may never know why he decided to leave Nicola alive. Some people say it's because he got what he wanted, so he left, and others claim that he wanted to try and be with her after the fact. And that seems a little bit delusional, even for Arthur. But what doesn't shock me is the theory that he left her alive so she could tell the story of what he did. It's no secret that Arthur thrived off the notoriety of his crimes, although it finally awarded him with one-of-a-kind justice system experience and being that first person to get a whole-life tariff. There were a lot of firsts for the UK during the course of this case, and fortunately it taught these officers and local communities how to band together in a crisis. So there we go, guys. Daniel has finished with, and that is the wretched case of Arthur Hutchinson. Do you know why I think he left her alive? I think it was because that would cause her even more suffering than if he'd put her out of her misery. So she had to live her life with that trauma and the memories of walking past the bodies of her parents, for example, and seeing the destruction that he caused. It's almost it's almost a worse scenario isn't it than actually being murdered so I wonder if it was the ultimate power trip for him that knowing that she would have to spend the rest of her life reliving that in her head every single day I think you're right there definitely what an absolutely amazing case and so well put together by Daniel isn't it yeah thank you so much Daniel and thank you everyone for joining us we'll be back next week with another episode we'll see you then see you then bye bye